0: Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds, by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And tonight, once again, we are part of Horror Month 2022, where I... Try to introduce you to eight horror movies that I have always loved, that I think perhaps do not get the amount of attention that they have ever deserved, and uh, tonight's movie is an especially interesting one for this for this uh, subject, because what we were talking about tonight is a TV movie, and I know a lot of people may roll their eyes when they hear the fact that I'm talking about a TV movie, but... I'm telling you, if you guys didn't grow up in the 70s and the 80s when they had these made-for-TV horror movies like the Movie of the Week, there were some fantastic ones back in the day. And the one I've picked for tonight is one of the all-time greats. This is one that uh, a lot of people remember seeing. I don't know what network it was on, but I just remember. I have heard they saw it on TV. It really affected them. And again, this is one you can find. It's not impossible to find. You're not going to find it on Netflix or any of that streaming garbage. But if you know where to look, you can find this movie, and the one I've chosen is a 1978 movie called "Someone's Watching Me," which I have to say is one of the all-time world's worst titles for a movie. But again, TV movie executive or uh, TV executives pick the titles or whatever. But anyway, it came out in 1978. It's a TV movie about a woman being stalked in a high-rise building, and it's good enough on its own. On its own. I would talk about this movie. I would love to recommend it to people. It's a creepy movie. It's uh, eerie. You remember it. There's lots of little effective moments in it. But there's something even more important about this movie, and that is the director. And what I will say is this was the first movie ever directed by John Carpenter, who you can make the argument is the all-time greatest horror movie director in Hollywood, known for Halloween, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, you know, The Fog, lots of stuff. This was his first movie. This is the John Carpenter origin story. And for years, it was called the Lost John Carpenter movie. So there's a lot of really interesting historical significance in this movie, despite the fact that it's a TV movie. And I will tell you right now, there's a lot of little tricks he uses in this movie that he later realized, hey, that was kind of cool. I'm going to do that later in Halloween. So there's a lot of little parallels between this and Halloween that I want to talk to you about. And I'm going to bring on my guest for this one. Uh, This is one of my oldest friends on the internet. We have known each other through MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, everything for years. We talk about movies all the time. Uh, He may have been the one to turn me on to this movie. I'm not entirely sure. But even if he didn't, he's one of the biggest John Carpenter fans I know. So... I've been dying to get him on an episode to talk about someone's watching me, the long-lost John Carpenter movie. So, anyway, welcome back to the show, my friend Christopher Chardy.
1: Hey, Mario. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, I am I'm very happy to talk about this movie. As you said, I'm a big Carpenter fan. Um, two minor corrections. Okay. Uh, he did have two films before this. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, if you don't count his student film Dark Star, um, there was also assault on Precinct 13 in 1976. Oh, I didn't realize
0: that came before this.
1: Yeah, um, but this is cool because he shot this um, before Halloween. This was actually this was actually in the works uh, as early as 76. Um it was based on a real woman in Chicago and it was initially called High Rise. Hmm. So it had a better title. Um and then uh it ended up coming out the month after Halloween, if you can imagine that. Um so <laughs> it is one of his first, um, and it was made at a time where he was still sort of breaking through. Um but can you imagine, like, this aired on TV the month after Halloween came out, and everybody knew who he was at that point.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to reiterate this one thing, and I want you to perhaps elaborate on this as well. These old TV movies, like, there is no equivalent to this any day uh, today, where there's just horror movies on TV on ABC every Sunday. Like... Please back me up. This was a major part of growing up in the 70s and 80s, these these weekly TV movies. And every so often you would get a gem like this. You'd get Duel by Steven Spielberg. You'd get Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. You'd get Don't Go to Sleep like this was a big part of growing up back in that era.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's something I miss. It's something we just don't have anymore. Um, I love a lot of these old horror TV movies. Um, Duel is my I think it's the best TV movie ever made. Uh, Spielberg made it in like two weeks and on a shoestring budget. And you look at it, you go, how in the hell did he do this? Um, The Night Stalker, which was also written by Richard Matheson as as Duel was. Um, The Midnight Hour, we were talking about before. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Um, There's a bunch of great ones. And uh, it's, it's sort of a you know lost art form but there's there's a lot of gems in there and uh, this is one of them and and uh I as I was the one that turned you onto this film um because I programmed a remote uh TV movie marathon uh I think 2 octobers ago mm-hmm. online with some friends and uh I slotted this in first movie And I figured, well, this is John Carpenter, and I've heard of it, but I've never seen it, and it's got to be pretty good. And I was floored by how good it was. Like, This is actually one of my favorite Carpenter films, believe it or not. So you had never seen this until two years ago? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, okay, let me paint a picture for my listeners here. Chris is one of the biggest John Carpenter fans I know. He knows every John Carpenter movie. He had never seen this movie until two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> halloween i still think halloween is the all-time greatest horror movie i love every single thing about halloween i've done a staff picks on it i just love that movie i had never heard of this movie so you got these two john carpenter horrors who had never heard of this movie and this movie is literally like a blueprint for halloween i'm like This movie has got to be a staff picks episode. It's killing me. It took me this long to finally get around to it. And I'm hoping I'm already blowing your minds, letting you know that there's this great John Carpenter movie out there that virtually nobody has ever heard of.
1: Well, and as you said, this was considered the lost Carpenter film for decades. Um, And it was rarely available on home video for a long time. Um, It was actually released on VHS in Europe. Um, there was never a VHS release in America. And and then it finally came out on DVD in 2007. And then uh, uh, Scream Factory put out a Blu-ray, uh, I don't think too long ago, which I still don't have and I need to get. But yeah, this is, for a long time, this was kind of just forgotten. And you had, kind of had to hunt it down. I, I It was one of those movies I heard the title over and over through the years and didn't know where to find it.
0: It's funny, right before this podcast, Chris and I were bitching about streaming services. We don't like streaming services because what they do is they create a very artificially small library of movies you can pick from. And they're usually ones that are better well-known, cheaper movies, stuff that you can get. This is a movie that will never, ever show up on a streaming service, I would guess. So you really have to be creative to go out and find a copy of this, and it's so well worth it. And it really galls me that there's all these movies and movie history that will be forgotten because the streaming services took everything over. So, again, I could not feel more strongly about this movie. Again, on Staff Picks, I pride myself on picking horror movies that are not really for horror fans. I don't pick stuff that's bloody. I don't do slashers, nothing torturey, nothing that jump scares you to death. And this movie is right up my alley. Like, there's not a drop of blood in this movie. There's barely any jump scares. It's just all tension and camera work and stalking and, and music. And, again, it's so similar to Halloween. I would say all those same things about Halloween. So, again, again, I really want to delve into this one for people who I know have never seen this before.
1: Yeah, and and, and I'll reiterate, you know, this was worked on before Halloween. So it was really the progenitor of Halloween um you know and, and black christmas too if we want to go that route but um yeah in terms of carpenter's career uh this set a lot of things in motion and um he only had 18 days to shoot this too and uh very limited time he only could shoot what he absolutely needed to shoot he couldn't i don't think he did any pickup shots or anything although i did notice Lauren Hutton, and I think a couple other characters seem to be looped a lot, a lot mm. of the dialogue. I don't know why. Um, Lauren Hutton said this was the best thing she'd ever done at that point. <laughs> now, I don't know how long she felt that way, but, um, you know, she had high praise for it. And uh, it was nominated for an Edgar Award, too. I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> but um, It sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And, of course, John met Adrian Barbeau doing this, who he would eventually marry. Uh, So, you know, this is such an interesting film in his career and so overlooked. And like like you said, you know, it's similar to Halloween in its construction and it actually predates Halloween uh, in terms of the filming and everything. So this is such an important movie and and nobody talks about it. And it's so well done, too.
0: Yeah, okay, let's, let's uh, you, you yada yada it over a couple things there. Let's summarize this movie for people. So, this movie stars Lauren Hutton, who was a supermodel at the time, very famous for the gap between her teeth. Arguably the biggest supermodel in the world at one point, I believe. And at one point she branched off into modeling, into acting. And this is one of her first movies, I believe. I don't know a whole lot of other ones of her movies. I know she did Once Bitten with Jim Carrey which I'm guessing is not her favorite of her movies.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but you said this was her favorite movie she ever did. How many other movies did she do? I was not aware she had this uh, significant acting career.
1: Well, I'm looking at her IMDb, and she has 59 credits, which is wow, pretty pretty decent. Um, some of these are TV series, though. Um, she had been acting for 10 years prior to this movie. Oh, okay. Um, so she had quite a few um, but yeah, you know, she had a pretty decent career. Um, I, like I said, I don't know if she still thinks it's one of her best works or, but, or, or what, but, um, she had, she had high, high praise for it at the time, at least.
0: Was she an American gigolo? For some reason, I think she was, um,
1: yes, 1980. Yeah. So she Although was between... doing,
0: yeah, she was doing legitimate, like acclaimed dramatic movies. Mm hmm. Okay. So I take it back. I was going to I was going to lead off my review by saying she wasn't really a known actress but she does a pretty good job in this. But I take that back. She was a known actress and anyway, she's the woman who gets stalked in this movie. She's the Jamie Lee Curtis, if you want to make Halloween comparisons. And it's really just uh, she's a young career girl. she's a TV producer, moves to Los Angeles, moves to a high-rise building, and right from the start there's a stalker in the building across the street that somehow knows everything about her. That's the short version, the Cliffs Notes uh, version of this movie.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And and again, you know, this is a reason why I love John Carpenter probably more than any director. He takes a simple premise and he just, you know, rings every last drop out of it, um, especially in the way this is shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of homages to Hitchcock, I think, in this. I think it's fair to say, especially Rear Window. Um, and yet it does its own thing. Um, now, the opening credits, I will say. I think is a very strong homage to uh, Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) Um, And there are a couple other moments too, but, um, but it's different too. It's similar, but different. And it's different enough that I, I think it, it warrants being held up as, as unique. And, and I think one of his best works too, honestly.
0: Yeah. And for one of the, the, the things for lay people, a lot of people just think of Halloween as the first slasher movie, which may or not be the case, but John Carpenter never described Halloween that way. He described it as an homage to Hitchcock.
1: Yeah, which makes sense. <laughs>
0: it makes sense, and a lot of people don't realize that. So this movie is an homage to Hitchcock. Halloween is an homage to Hitchcock. So many little camera tricks he was good at. One thing I love in this movie in particular, John Carpenter loves to use the ringing of the phone as a jump scare. Like, it's not a nasty jump scare. It's just it will permeate the silence when you hear the phone ring. And because the phone is always a stalker, it's always an, an uh, unexpected, unhappy intrusion into their world. So it's just lots of little tricks he does in a movie that, on paper, this movie is a big nothing burger. It's just a woman being stalked. There's nothing interesting about it. It's all style. That's all I will say.
1: And, and again, to me, that's John Carpenter's talent. He could take anything And, you know, get an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes out of it and and really put you in in the situation. Uh, He's great with atmosphere. You know, he's got a lot of tricks that he uses in all his films, like, you know, uh, claustrophobic hallway shots and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And and getting down low. So everything seems giant and all the carpenter trademarks are here already and uh yeah he just he just rings every last drop out of this movie
0: one of my favorite carpenter trademarks is where there's music in the background like the woman's in a in an apartment looking around looking for the bad guy then all of a sudden the music will drop out there's no music for the next five minutes and i cannot tell you how unnerving that is because that's not something they normally do in horror movies and and carpenter will not let you off the hook with a cheap jump scare either he just likes ringing that tension of no music in the background and again i got to point out this was a tv movie they they could not do anything that's not not appropriate for tv yet this movie is still terrifying he still pulls it off
1: yeah yeah and i meant to say earlier that i think the limitations of the tv movie art form actually kind of help in this instance too Um, Because there's stuff that he can't show. There's places he can't quite go. Although he does really sort of tread that fine line in a couple of these scenes, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) There's some interesting themes for 1978, too. You know, so he goes as far as he can. But um, yeah, it's 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 interesting.
0: Okay, two more things before we delve into the plot of this movie. And again, the plot is very simple. This will not be an exceptionally long podcast, but there's some couple historical things that are interesting about this movie. You mentioned one of them, Adrian Barbeau, uh, our main heroine, Lauren Hutton. She has a best friend, Adrian Barbeau, works with her at the TV station. A is a lesbian, which is a yeah. really odd uh, plot choice for 1978 i did not know they had lesbians in you know key roles in movies and it's like not even a major part of their character she's just a lesbian that happens to be the side character like that's very progressive for
1: 1978 yeah yeah she's it's not made too much of a big deal out of they kind of have a friendly joke about it and they kind of move on and it's it's really cool
0: and then Adrian Barbeau ended up marrying John Carpenter. I don't know if people know that, that they were man and wife. And he always says he met her on the set of this movie. So this movie, Someone's Watching Me, was very significant to John Carpenter because he met his wife.
1: Yeah, and, and, and as you said, it's, it's definitely a precursor to Halloween, too. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Okay, and one more thing
0: before we get into the plot. I showed this movie to my wife. She liked it. I showed this movie to my daughter, and she liked it. And I asked both of them why they liked it. And they both had a very similar answer. And I'm not sure as a guy you will get this answer, Chris. They both said the woman in peril never does anything dumb. She's never a wuss, and her first instinct is always to fight back because this is my house and screw you. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They really love that because the woman is not a ninny in this
1: movie. No, I do too. Uh, Of course I do. Um, and I, I even put that in my notes. But, I, again, I think that's a carpenter trait, too. If you look at all his movies, he's he pretty much treats female characters that way in, in all of them. Uh, like I said, go back to Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. Um, strong female characters in that one, too, right, right out of the gate. Um, I can't really think of any of his movies where I'd say, oh, you know, <laughs> that female character is just like a, you know, uh, a shrinking daffodil, or whatever they say. Uh, he's, I think he's really good at it, and um, especially in this one, Lauren Hutton it just <laughs> she will not take any crap. <laughs> um, she never backs down. Uh, well, I mean, we'll get into it how deep she goes, <laughs> uh, almost off the deep end. Um, but it, it's great, yeah. It's it's definitely one of this film's best qualities, and it, it makes it so much uh fun to watch too.
0: Yeah, there's no clichés in this movie. And if there were, it's inventing clichés. That's that's what I like to say. Okay. So, anyway, this movie aired on November 29, 1978, which I believe is a month after Halloween aired or debuted. Right. So, man, that, what a fun time to be alive if you're a horror fan. You got yeah. <laughs> two huge John Carpenter peak movies coming out within a month of each other. So, anyway, 1978 was the fall of John Carpenter and uh, with that, I think we're ready to delve into the plot of this, so one, that I, one that I've really wanted to talk about for a long time.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay. So the movie opens in the stalker's apartment. Okay, there's a, there's a horrible stalker in this movie. He stalks young women. He finds about everything about their life. He breaks into their apartment. He puts bugs in their room. He terrorizes them. He's just a monster. And it's very effective because we're never going to see him through most of the movie. But the movie opens from his point of view, which I always thought was really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a very, very, very stylized opening, even before we get to the stylized opening credits. Um, but, yeah, it, it really sets that tone immediately. Uh, that's pr- it's probably the most stylized part of the whole movie, is just opening a couple of minutes.
0: Yeah, so what do we see? We see the stalker. He's got a telescope, this really long I should point out Phallic Telescope, probably not unintentional. Oh,
1: yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah,
0: the long Phallic Telescope where he can invade all these women's privacies in these high-rise buildings. He's got a, a phone tap machine. He's got a tape recorder. We see all his equipment. And the movie opens with him in the late stages of stalking a woman named Elizabeth where he calls her up. He's like, why weren't you at work today, Elizabeth? And she's like, look, look, stop, you've won. Like, and we get the sense he's been stalking her for a long time. She's like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Don't leave me, Elizabeth, I'll find you. I'll always find you. I don't give up. Sweet dreams.
1: And that's the ominous opening as we go into the credits then. And and you're going to, this is another theme throughout this movie, is um, there's really only one guy in this movie who's not a total creeper. (laughs) and we'll get to that um so so in setting you up right from the beginning you're going to see a lot of male characters who have these similar kind of traits uh you know uh some more than others but um yeah they're all kind of on in the same boat in a way and then uh yeah so we jump into the credits and as i said this is a Got to be a huge Hitchcock homage. Um, even the credits themselves look like they were made by Saul Bass, who did all Hitchcock's credits. The score kicks in hard. Sounds like Bernard Herrmann, who scored many of Hitchcock's films. So it's not subtle, uh, <laughs> but um, but it quickly gets into Carpenter Land. We, we start going into a unique direction.
0: Okay, so let's meet our hero here. Our hero of the movie, and again, there's not very many characters in this movie. It's a really simple screenplay. This is uh, Lee Michaels. She is a TV producer, 29 years old, played by a very young Lauren Hutton. They're trying to pass her off as 29. I do not buy that she's 29. (laughs) (laughs) Considering you said she'd been acting for 10 years, I don't believe that she's 29. Yeah. (laughs) So, Lee has moved to Los Angeles, and uh, at the start of the movie, we see her in her new building, the Arkham Towers, which are just a fantastic name for a building. This huge high rise, and she's moving up almost into a penthouse suite, really high up in the building. And I love this building. My wife is just jealous when she sees Lee's apartment in this movie. It's, like, massive, and there's windows all over the place. Everything is, like, computer-controlled. It's brand new. It's clean. It's just, like, the perfect, awesome apartment a woman moving into the city would want to live in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and she, on several occasions, she makes reference to the fact that she's just moved to L.A. And, you know, she's all excited and starting this career and everything. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty swank pad. It's a... It's a I guess, it's not a studio apartment as it? it has it has separate rooms.
0: It looks like a two bedroom, if anything, it's
1: big. Yeah, yeah, um, kind of looks like something out of Three's Company, but that just might be the decor <laughs> and it, the earth tones. We're in the earth tones era at this point, um, but yeah, it's pretty
0: cool. And of course, the big defining trait again. The building is all computer controlled. It's state-of-the-art for 1978. Everything is controlled. Climate, elevators, locks. It's all computer controlled. This will become very important later in the movie when the stalker has access to the computers. But the number one feature in her apartment is she has a huge balcony with about 100 windows. So she can stand out there and look out over Los Angeles, and she loves it. She's got a balcony. But for a enterprising young stalker across the street. This is also good news because he sees her out on her balcony and we get a shot of him looking through his phallic telescope saying, Oh, look at this, a new girl in town.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this, this is like rear window on steroids here. (laughs) Uh, This set, (laughs) which is just amazing. Um, And and there are, there are shots in this movie where it's, I, I actually, Well, we'll get to that at the at the end of the movie, particularly. I don't know how they shot it. I mean, it looks like it's actually in an apartment building Mm -hmm. in L.A., but I don't know how they were able to do that. Hmm. Interesting. OK, they're they're way up there.
0: I, I, I think you're talking about the last scene in the movie. I, that's what you're mm-hmm. talking about. OK. Mm-hmm. OK. So we see Lee again, young career woman moving to the big city. We find out later. It's kind of important why she left New York. She was being stalked by a coworker.
1: yeah (laughs) she moves to
0: new york or to la all of a sudden every guy she meets is hitting on her we get a really interesting time capsule of what life was like for a young mary tyler moore type in the early 70s the woman in a business surrounded by men she is constantly being hit on and we see this right off the bat in her first day at work
1: yeah yeah and uh one of the interesting parts is where she's talking to herself trying to prep herself to talk to the boss and um And then she says something like, "I hope that's not going to be a problem being single like she she just expects to be uh harassed and she's kind of just prepping herself for that, so she's been through a lot um but she's she's uh she's also very strong too, and she knows what she has to deal with for better or worse
0: yeah, and that's one thing we'll keep coming back to. She is not a weak character;
1: she knows what she's doing mm-hmm uh one thing i want to add is that there's like one real, real small moment where she's kind of unpacking and get you know getting everything set up in the in the apartment and um she says something about being alone and, and at first she seems excited and then she has this amazing like facial expression that kind of changes and she's for a split second she's kind of like oh god like like i really am alone it, it's it's interesting. It's a vulnerability that she shows, um, not much through the movie, mm-hmm. but that she does have her moments. Uh, so I thought that was, that was kind of interesting.
0: Okay, and now she's at her first day at work at a, at a TV studio. Again, she's a live television director. She directs which cameras go to which shot, which actor is going to be on the air during live TV. And basically her first day at work, she's thrown into the pressure cooker, And she succeeds, even though she doesn't. She kind of doubts herself. Am I going to be able to do this? She pulls it off amazingly, along with. And this is where we meet her best friend, Sophie, played by Adrian Barbeau, kind of helps her. And so the boss says, "Wow, good job. You're really good at TV." So right off the bat, Lee is good at TV. She's developed a friend. Her and Sophie go back to the office, and it's in here that this is where we learn that Sophie's lesbian, right? Yes. Okay. Which again not the type of plot line you're really going to see in a movie in 1978.
1: Yeah, and it's dealt with so subtly. It's like, oh, this is just the way it is. And like I said, they make a quick joke about it. And it's a very, like, like charming moment. And, yeah, they don't make a big deal out of it. You know, they don't belittle it. Um, it it's, it's really cool.
0: I think if I recall, they also point out that they both left their last jobs because of the stalkers, that Lee was getting stalked by a man and Sophie was getting stalked by a woman. So they have something in common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they I think they kind of bond over that, mm-hmm. too. And, you know, because Lauren Hutton's character, Lee, is, is putting up with this crap as soon as she gets there. And and uh, Adrian Barbeau is kind of like helping her to get through it and. She said, you know, that's just the beginning. He's like a Mountie, you know, (laughs) and and she said, well, this Mountie isn't going to get his whatever it is or something like that. Um, (laughs) So they're kind of like bonding over the fact that they've been harassed. It's it's very interesting. Yeah. So these
0: two are fast friends, Lee and Sophie. And again, this is not a buddy buddy comedy. This is a horror movie. So the horror is going to ramp up pretty quick here where it's Lee's first day at work and somebody calls her. She gets a mysterious phone call in her office and she picks it up and it's a very distinct voice. We'll be hearing this voice a lot in the movie. He says, Miss Michaels. And she's like, yes. And he's like, I thought so. And he hangs up. And she's like, huh, weird. Now, unbeknownst to her, but knownst to us, why he's doing this, he wants to verify she's at work because he is in her apartment right now setting bugs. And this is going to be the crux of the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it gets it gets crazier later on. Uh, well, I, I won't jump the gun. But, <laughs> yeah, she eventually figures this out. I'll say that.
0: Okay, so let's just yada yada through this. She goes through her first day at work. The boss says she does a great job. There's one of the guys, the switchboard operator in her company, of course, hits on her because that's just what happens. And she turns him down, and she's like, you know – it's the same here as any other job, but she's like, You know what? I think it's gonna work out here and Sophie's like, Yeah, I think so too. And so it's meant to look like her life is make is uh had a nice happy achievement here. But now the movie's gonna start turning into a John Carpenter movie where she goes back to her apartment that day and now the scary stuff starts.
1: Yeah. And there is one scene or one shot in this scene that is so creepy. Mm-hmm and I'm sure you know what it is. Mm-hmm. I know <laughs> About, exactly. It's almost 16 minutes in and I ha- like it's one of those shots you watch a couple times in a row. It's like that's that's so effective. I can't even nail down why that's so effective. But uh you can see him moving towards Halloween already. <laughs> now, should we should we say what that shot is or Of course, we're walking people through the movie cuz I know most people have never
0: seen this before. Yeah. So I'll set it up and you can talk about the scene in question. So she comes home to her first apartment, the Arkham Tower, and she uh, walks in there and she notices her door is ajar. And she's like, huh? And she walks inside and she's like, has someone been in here? And she's like, hello, hello. And she's really suspicious as she should be. And uh, as she's there, she announces, I'm a black belt. I know karate. You don't want to mess with me. But no one's in her apartment. And then she sees that her new phone is there. Her new phone has been installed for younger people. The phone company had to come in and physically put a phone in your apartment, hook it up. They had to, when you had a new apartment. So she's like, oh, good. My new phone is here. And she walks up. She's like, apparently, someone from the phone company installed my phone, left the door open. She's relieved. And this is where we get what's not quite a jump scare, but it is definitely something that will get your attention.
1: Yeah, it is a quintessential carpenter move. Um, and in fact, the camera is moving, I believe, as this happens. We see her on the phone in the background. We see a guy just run to the right in, in dressed in black, just out of nowhere behind her. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's so creepy. He just bolts for the door. And and again, as you said, I don't think there's any music in this part. It's dead silent. Um but the visual is just so freaky. Yeah. It's so cool.
0: That is definitely one of the best moments in the movie. It's John Carpenter was so good at that. He, it, it looks like it's a scary scene. All the tension is relieved. The heroine lets down her guard and she kind of turns to the right. And as she's turning a shadow bolts behind her in the background It doesn't attack her. You just weren't expecting that man to run across the So the stalker was in her apartment the whole time. And this is, this is what's creepy about this movie he will be in her movie, her apartment a lot and she will never know
1: yeah yeah and and that's one aspect of this that i think um this is almost like a giallo film to me mm. not not just a sta- uh, a a slasher film but a giallo because it, it has more of, of that kind of feel to it uh, just like an elegant slasher mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> i don't know that the i see elements of that I could be wrong. I don't know if that was a, a conscious influence on Carpenter for this, but that's how it feels to me. This it, feels like a Giallo film.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely got a distinct feel. It's not your typical TV horror movie, and it's not your typical theater horror movie. And it's again, it's just all tension. And this first night, her, when she's at the Arkham Apartments all by herself, this is where it's going to start ramping up, where she's going to start getting phone calls. And the phone calls will be relentless. And first, it's the coworker at her job who was trying to hit on her. He calls twice. She blows him off. Then the third time, it's the stalker. Mm-hmm. And this is something I really have to get across to my younger viewers. When you were in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the phone rang, you had no idea who it was.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> it could be Anybody. And again, if someone starts stalking you, you take your phone off the hook, you, you know, unplug it. There's a way to get around that. But you also miss every other call. And so much of your life was determined by phones and outside communication with people. It was a very intrusive way when strangers could call you and you wouldn't know who they are and you had to answer and listen to them breathe or make sexual noises or hang up. And again, Carpenter uses this so well, this creepy phone that never stops ringing. The minute she's done with one call, he will call back, and he never says anything. He just breathes, and it's really unnerving.
1: Yeah, and and it, he also does this trick where there's multiple times in this movie where she'll get a couple calls in a row, and you don't know who – it's like a like a roulette wheel. You don't know who's going to show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so that just adds to the suspense. Um because sometimes it'll be one person twice in a row, and then somebody else. It's it's kind of crazy. And Carpenter
0: uses that trick again in Halloween with the calls from Linda and Annie. Right, right. Just, I just want to point that out. That's a that's a Carpenter trope. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the night, she gets unnerved. She's getting all these phone calls from somebody she doesn't know, and then the pan the the camera pans down underneath her desk. She's got a little desk where her phone is on and there's a bug you see a little bug he has planted underneath her table that's why he was in her apartment he can hear everything she does in her apartment and she's not going to be aware of this until later in the movie and that's why he's got so much power over her and she doesn't understand how
1: yeah and i think that's another thing i want to mention like there were a lot of movies in the 70s about the surveillance state too especially after watergate um I I think the conversation would be the probably the biggest example. Um, There was a lot of this paranoia going on in the 70s. Um, So that's another element here that I think people don't talk about very much is just the exploration of surveillance and loss of privacy and paranoia. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it runs through this movie, too.
0: Yeah, I was going to say this really isn't a horror movie. It's a paranoia movie.
1: Uh yeah I guess that's fair to say I mean I, I would I would still call it horror but but yeah I, I get what you're saying
0: okay so let's move along so the next day Sophie this is Adrian Barbeau her buddy comes over to the apartment and they start setting up they're moving in furniture and I forget if Lee mentions the stalker yet it's she's gonna mention it soon right now it's a, Lee is the only one who knows about it but now Lee is gonna start getting packages. And this this stalker's got some style points. Why don't you
1: uh, talk about his uh, his gifts he likes to send to Lee? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, he's <laughs> he's sending her this thing about a free six month vacation um, at from I can't remember the name of the company that he made up. Can you? Excursions Unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> so um, even back then, they were getting these scams. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, and, and she and, um, Adrian Barbeau's character are sitting around trying to figure out, is this legit? Is this a scam? What's going on here? Uh, so that's kind of interesting, but yeah, definite, definite style points for that.
0: Yes. This first gift she gets is from Excursions Unlimited. It's a big telescope and basically a note says, go outside, look around. And this, again, it's just a cheap trap. He's trying to lure her out onto her balcony more so he can look at her. But she doesn't realize that yet, and there's all these notes that say, you know, you're going to get a trivia question or some location quiz, and if you guess the the location, that you'll get a free trip. So she thinks it's a scam, but you know what? It was a free telescope, so she takes it for now. But they also are both a little wary. Why are people sending me gifts? They're they're not stupid. They think this is a hoax. Right, right. (laughs) And now that next night, now the stalker is going to start upping his game. This night where uh, Lee is sitting on her couch smoking. By the way, Lauren Hutton smokes as much as anybody I've ever seen in a movie
1: in this movie. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much.
0: Yeah, but the uh, time capsule of the movie, everyone smoked in the 70s. But yeah, Laura Hutton's always sitting there on her couch smoking. But this next night, now the stalker is going to start unnerving her a little more. Now he starts hacking into her electrical system. And, again, that's what I said earlier, this whole com- this whole apartment is, b- is based around computers. He has access to it. So here come the dimming of the lights.
1: Right, right. Um, and I think we – okay, I see. You, I, I think we kind of hopped around uh, here time-wise because um, – we did we get to the part where she met uh, David Bernie's character? I think we're right around No, we're now. right
0: before that. He's the scene after this.
1: Okay, because the telescope doesn't come till later. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, first the, he sends her the thing from that company, and they're trying to figure out if it's a scam. Then later on ah. uh, comes the telescope, and then the – well, we'll get to that.
0: Okay, so let's 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 have her meet her boyfriend. There's one other character. There's like four characters in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to meet her boyfriend, Paul. Uh, one night she goes out to the bar. She's unnerved because the lights are dimming in her apartment. She's getting crank phone calls. She just wants to get out. It's kind of creepy to be in her house, and she goes out to a bar – And uh, this is an interesting one because she actually walks up and picks up this guy.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a switcheroo here. So so we have this whole setup of, you know, surveillance and stalking and harassing. And then she goes to this bar and now she's the aggressor. It's kind of interesting. And uh, (laughs) I love this little exchange here um, where he she's like she touches him you know what i'm talking about and and he goes what are you testing and she says i have strange fears and he goes really what and she says being raped by dwarves <laughs> you could have been sitting up there on stilts i had to check like what a weird exchange <laughs>
0: yeah they through this stretch they really try to portray her as being kind of goofy and odd and having a weird sense of humor yeah. and that drops later they drop that later in the movie but yeah for one scene here like all of a sudden she's a stand up comedian
1: yeah <laughs> She, 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 uh, I I don't know. She's like borderline kind of stalking this guy, but, but the sense of humor kind of cuts it, I think a little bit.
0: Yeah. So this guy's name is Paul and she asks him out and they go on a date and go walking around and, uh, what happens? She, uh, he's a, a philosophy professor at USC, if I recall, right?
1: Yeah, and then he she starts talking to him about her mom and how she never believed any of her problems growing up and said, there you go being wacky again. That was what she <laughs> used to say to her all the time. <laughs> so they're just having these kind of interesting moments walking, walking around at night. It's kind of cool. It's a meet-cute. That's what they call it. Right. And I'll say another element of this movie I love is you get a lot of scenic late 70s L.A. It's all over this movie, Oh yeah, uh, downtown L.A., and it looks so cool. It's one of my favorite parts of this. Yeah,
0: I was going to say that. This movie is a wonderful time capsule of Los Angeles in
1: 1978. Yeah. And there are times where the buildings and the cityscape become very much part of the, of the plot, mm-hmm. too.
0: <laughs> and Paul, her boyfriend, they will stay together for the rest of the movie. He will be the one man in this movie who's not creepy to her. So he's the one good guy.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> now, although although I will say we will fall into some of the tropes later in the movie where he has to solve the problem, he has to save the day. So John Carpenter making an effort to make a feminist horror movie, but even even he will fall into the tropes where she's sitting there catatonic on the couch and he's like, I know what I'll do, I'll go fix this. So, <laughs>
1: Well, he's just trying to help. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> okay, but yeah, this whole scene is creepy where she and Paul are walking around L.A. and... And we see they're being followed. The stalker will not let Lee alone. He is following her on her date. We see him peering through the bushes. We hear him, like, growling. He does not like that she has a boyfriend. And yeah. uh, <laughs> this is a bad, bad thing.
1: That point of view shot behind the bushes is so cool. And and then, actually, this is one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. Uh, uh, Lee is searching for Paul, who kind of disappears, and um, her fa- she runs up and her face is lit in this almost like noir kind of way. And then you see in the background the skyscraper, and you see this elevator go up the side. Mm-hmm. It's this long shot, and it's the only thing in a shot that's moving. It's so cool. I, 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 don't, I can't even really explain why it's so cool, but it just – it's creepy. And it, and it just ratchets up the suspense, like what's going to happen next?
0: Okay, so now that she's met her boyfriend, now we're going to go back to the apartment. In pretty much the next half hour of the movie is this guy just tormenting Lee. Not Paul, not the boyfriend, the stalker tormenting Lee as much as he can. We get scenes of the lights flickering on and off. We get at one point he calls and says, is your air conditioning out? And then her air conditioning stops. (laughs) Like he just has all this control over her apartment and she's getting a little unnerved. Although there's a little detail here I kind of forgot and I forgot to mention it. She's watching TV one night while the stalking's going on. And if you listen on the TV, it says, uh, what does it say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It says uh, there was a young woman, Elizabeth Solly, 25 years old, who jumped to death from a high-rise building. If you know the movie, that's the girl that he was stalking earlier in the movie. She jumped to her death of suicide to get away from him. That's his M.O. That is what's going to... Try to be the ending of this movie here This is what this guy does Torments these girls Gets them to kill themselves off high-rises It's a neat little foreshadowing We hear it on the news report That he just killed his last girl
1: I caught that too And I was tripping out I'm like, oh man That's that's such a great little element And not only that But Elizabeth Solly Is the name of Jamie Lee Curtis's character In The Fog
0: I just read that Yeah, that's a little John Carpenter uh, Expanded universe <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things in here that he reused, too. Um, I'll, we'll get to those. But, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was tripping when I when I noticed that news report. That was so cool. So this is where she gets the telescope um, and immediately assembles it for some reason. We, <laughs> they kind of skip forward, and she's made the whole thing and just sitting there on the floor. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's right.
0: So Excursions Unlimited keeps sending her gifts. They give her the telescope. Next after that is a candy box, which has a bikini in it, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Super creepy.
0: Yeah. Very excited to see her in her bikini out on the balcony. That's really all he wants. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, he calls, present number two, Lee. I hope it fits.
1: Yeah. Ooh, oh, <laughs>
0: Okay, so now Paul comes over for a date, the boyfriend, and he notices that Lee's a little rattled. She's getting these gifts. She's getting these phone calls. And this is where she first kind of spills the, her guts to her, to Paul, and says what's going on.
1: And it's a really interesting shot, too, because it mostly focuses on her, kind of zooms to the right on her. And then, and then you cut to a shot that zooms in on him at the other end of the table, uh, which I thought was interesting. That was an interesting way to present this scene.
0: Yeah, because you're not supposed to really trust Paul. I think that's he's oh kind, yeah, he's kind of the red herring here in this movie.
1: Totally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, and again, this is why I think this is kind of Giallo adjacent because there's several uh, points in this movie where you're you're not sure who this is and mm-hmm. who to trust, and um, he Carpenter does a really good job of of kind of throwing away throwing around that hot potato of of suspicion. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so we're gonna go through the finishing the stalking section here, where uh, where yeah, Paul says, "Well, you know, we'll 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 research this company, this Excursions Unlimited. We'll try to find out who's sending you these packages." And he leaves, and the minute he leaves, the phone calls start up again. Sweet dreams, Lee. So anyway, that this is the stretch where Paul and her try to go to the cops, right? They try to figure out who is sending these packages.
1: Uh, yeah, well, this is that that's after um, she goes to the bar. Remember? Oh, and yeah. Then, uh, the, and then all of a sudden she gets a drink and uh, and the waitress says, oh, it's from a guy at the bar and he's not there, which is also a creepy touch. Yeah.
0: OK, yeah. Two things. Yeah. So, OK. So you said that scene. So first, Paul, the boyfriend goes and looks up on Excursions Unlimited, finds out there's no such company. I looked at all these records. They don't exist. And then this is where Lee goes out to dinner with her friend Sophie. Right. And this is where, yeah, they're eating Italian food and uh someone sends her a bottle of wine in the middle of dinner. And Lee looks around and, and it turns out the stalker was in the apart in the restaurant, sent her a bottle but she never saw him. And she asked the waitress, Who who sent me this bottle of wine? And the waitress is like I don't know, just some guy.
1: Yeah. Super creepy.
0: (laughs) Although we do get a little bit of detail here, which is important for the movie, where, where she's having dinner with Sophie, and Sophie says she's considering taking a job in Fort Worth, Texas. This will become important later.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, here we go. Now we're about to go to a turning point in the movie. Now that Lee is getting mystery bottles of wine in the restaurant from the stalker. Now she's getting a little furious because this guy's getting a little too close to her. Because as far as she knows, she's been getting calls and gifts. Now he's following her into restaurants. Now he's probably driving around right behind her. She's getting pissed. So the next night when the guy calls, he calls, He says, I'm sorry you didn't like the, like the wine. Now she snaps and she's like, who is this? Who are you? She immediately hangs up on him and calls the cops. So now she's going to be, start being proactive.
1: the cops, who could not be any less helpful. (laughs) He says, I can't send anyone out to check on a phone call. In case he does anything, give us another call. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God. Well, I was going to say, in the cops' defense, I think that's all they can do, literally, even to this day. If someone's calling you and there's no crime,
1: what really could they do? Yeah, I guess. Yeah,
0: but they, they don't treat her very nicely. We'll just say that. No,
1: no. And that's another common theme in this is is most people don't believe her or they gaslight her. It just comes up over and over again.
0: Yeah, so the cops just cannot help her. They're like, look, somebody's calling you in the night and on your phone. That's not illegal. Someone's sending you gifts. That's not illegal. We can't do anything until he commits a crime. He's not even threatening you. And she screams. She's like, well, if he kills me, you'll be the first to know. And yeah. right when she says that, her lights dim again and yeah. perfect timing. And she just goes like, no, and she gets pissed. And she's going to be pissed really from here on out.
1: Yep, yep. And she's just going to get more and more badass as it goes pretty much.
0: Okay, so here we go. So she's just broken by this point. Poor Lee. You know, she's had to change her phone number. She's still getting calls at least twice a day, she says. She's trying to keep a log so the cops can set up a tap on her phone. They're like, we're not sure we're going to do that. She's completely on her own. And I think this is the third present that finally arrives in the mail, right?
1: The threatening letter, right?
0: The threatening letter. And if I recall, it's a picture of the last girl who killed herself.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This escalates here.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Now she's out for blood.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now she's mad. And now yeah, he's, he sends a threatening letter, and in, at one point he tapes a message to her door, so he's literally been at her front door, and he says, sorry I missed you, I'll be down in the garage at 11.30 if you want to come meet. Which, again, in a smart, in, a, in most movies the heroine would not go down to meet the killer in his chosen location, but Lee is pissed, so we get a nice long protracted chase scene here where she's like, fuck it, I'm going to go kill this motherfucker, and she grabs a knife and she goes down in the garage to confront the guy.
1: Yeah, that is one of the best scenes in the movie. It is so tense.
0: Yeah, explain this scene to people. This is to set up Paint a Picture for, to paint a picture for people. She goes down into her creepy underground garage in her apartment all by herself with a knife, and there's this attached laundry room down there, which is the creepiest laundry room I have ever seen <laughs> in an apartment. Just it's basically like a rape dungeon. Like I wouldn't walk in there. I'm a guy.
1: It totally is.
0: (laughs) So explain this scene. This is John Carpenter at his peak here.
1: Yeah. And and again, this is why I think this may have been influenced by Giallo films, because this is total Giallo. Um, Yeah. So she's, she goes into this laundry room and it's all quiet and she's trying to figure out where this guy is and she hears something and she proceeds. And then of course she drops the knife down this grate. And so, she goes down and takes the grate off and hides underneath here as this guy's, he, he she hears him looking for her. Um, so she puts the grate over it and grabs the knife. And then this guy comes and, of course, he stands right on top of the grate and he's smoking a cigarette. And then accidentally, no, not accidentally, he purposely drops it down the grate, doesn't know she's there. Um and she's just laying there and it kinda of falls on her and she kinda of lets it fall to the side. Um but this this whole scene is just is just tension. One oh one.
0: Yeah, there's a fun reveal at the end too, which I, always makes me laugh. It's not oh supposed here we to, go, yeah. It's not supposed to make you laugh. So yeah, she's hiding under a grate, and there's stalker guy is walking above her, and you just see him from the feet and crotch straight up. She's looking up at him. He doesn't see her. So she climbs up out of the grate, and she's walking to get back to her apartment. And as she's turning a corner, she runs smack dab into somebody face to face who we are meant to think is the stalker. Uh, we'll find out later it's not the stalker. But, Chris, I will give you the honor. Who does she run into?
1: Jerry, hello! <laughs>
0: Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. Yeah, Len Lesser, who for years back in the 70s always played a thug because he's got a scary face. And Uncle Leo shows up here as the stalker and she runs into him. And it's, again, it's not supposed to be funny. But if you know you're Seinfeld, you just totally expect him to have like no eyebrows, like his eyebrows burned off or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because, you know. I have seen him in a couple of movies in the last couple of years, and he always plays just the biggest creep. And it's like a shock to my system. Uh, Blood and Lace is an early 70s, like, proto slasher. He plays a total scumbag in that. And then there's this late 70s horror movie called Ruby with Piper Laurie, and he's in that, too, and he's a creep. Um, And then there's this one, too. it's, It's really funny. Um, i i don't think this was the first one i saw him in where he was a creeper but um but this is this is a, a pretty big one
0: <laughs> yeah and we are gonna find uncle leo is a peeping tom he really does creep around girls and take pictures of them through their windows he's just not the stalker and we'll find this out later so but he is a creep and uh so she thinks she's run into the creep she runs upstairs and there's another note on her door from the actual creep saying sorry i missed
1: you we'll try again later <laughs> so yeah <laughs> Yeah, and, and I looked at the the notes too, and the first one was time stamped at 11:15 mm-hmm. and the second one was 1130. So within 15 minutes he had left two creepy notes on her door. That is that is so <laughs> that is so unnerving. That's dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's gonna stop. Well, you know, just like uh, um, uh, Sophie said about the guy in the at the uh, TV station. You know, he's like a Mountie. All these guys are kind of like Mounties. They're they're very dedicated. (laughs) They always get their woman.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the plot is going to escalate here. Lee knows she's being stalked. She knows he's sending her gifts. She knows he can call her on the phone. He seems to know what's going on in her apartment. He knows how to turn her lights on and off. At one point, she is able to stop the elevator when she's in it. He knows everything about her, but... There's one variable she is not aware of yet. And that's going to happen this night where Paul comes over to console her. Paul and Lee are there. They uh, have sex. They finally kind of break the ice. It's like their fourth date. He, yeah. he spends the night, and uh, the stalker sees. The stalker is not pleased that she's having sex. But the next morning when Lee wakes up, she's just wearing her bathrobe. She's walking around in the apartment in her bathrobe in front of her windows, and the stalker calls up when she's all by herself, and he says, Lee. I like you better without the robe. Take it off.
1: Yeah, totally, totally creepy.
0: So this is the first moment in the movie where she realizes he can see her.
1: Yeah, yeah, this totally turns the whole thing around for the third act.
0: And and this is something my wife had always said when watching this movie. Why does she keep her windows open every goddamn minute of the day? If She's got a stalker. How come she never figured out to close all these drapes on her windows? But this is the moment she realizes he can see her. She's like, oh, no. And we get one of those JAWS shots where the camera zooms in and zooms out at the same time where you see, like, her being disoriented when she realizes he can see her.
1: Yeah, the, the, the vertigo shot. Yeah, the yeah. vertigo
0: shot. And she closes all the blinds. And her blinds will all be closed the rest of the movie. And this is going to piss off the stalker to no end.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, This really gets to him. <laughs> but I, and I I had the same thought, too. Uh, I was like, well, wait a minute. Why didn't she close the curtains? And then I realized, well, she didn't she didn't know. Yeah. She didn't know until this point in the movie that he was right across the way. Yeah. And she's like on the 35th
0: floor. Who could see into the 35th floor?
1: Yeah. And it was a different era, too. And, you know, people people didn't even lock their doors back then. So, you know, people weren't quite as suspicious.
0: Okay, yeah, so now we have some hints on who the stalker is. He lives in a place called the Blake Tower across the street. He's got to be somewhat high up so that he can see into her penthouse apartment. And so her, Paul, and Sophie start forming a stakeout where they're going to sit there behind the blinds and look out in their binoculars, in their telescope, try to find anybody who's looking at them. And this is where Lee is really starting to get pissed, where Paul suggests she move, and she's like, no. How dare he? This is my home. He has no right. How dare he invade invade my life? And and I think and even Sophie says, you know, even though he's not doing anything, this is rape. Rape is when a man constantly keeps a woman in fear. This is rape. I don't care what the law says.
1: Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that down too. Uh, I actually I wrote both of those lines down because I thought they were they were key in this movie. Um but the interesting thing is You know, and again, to bring up Rear Window, this is when they become the voyeurs, too, because now they're so paranoid that they keep watching across the street. Now, this is – they're, like, fixated on this to try to get this guy.
0: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the tables are going to turn. They're kind of hunting him now. But it's going to be a cat and mouse game because this guy's really smart, as we're going to figure out. It's nowhere near as easy to catch him as we think. But – Lee and her, and her Paul and Sophie think they have the upper hand. They've closed their drapes. No one can see in. They've really effectively shut him out. And this is where she gets a letter that is now probably considered the first threat. Did you write down the wording of this
1: letter? Uh, uh, oh, uh, is this removal procedures beginning immediately? Yes. Mmm, God. <laughs> yeah, her latest letter from Excursions Unlimited
0: says, We regret to inform you that you have not qualified for our travel incentive vacation program. Your behavior has reached final point, and the only action left is removal. You will be removed immediately.
1: Oh, God, that's so creepy.
0: So (laughs) now she's got her first oblique threat that he's threatening violence against her. Now we go to the cops for real, and now we meet a fun little character who, hey, surprise, is also in Halloween, Charles (laughs) Cyphers.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, um, now I think... Is his, isn't his character in this Deputy Gary Hunt, which is another which is another character in Halloween, too? <laughs> wow. He uh, so Carpenter likes to reuse stuff.
0: Yeah, if you don't remember Charles Cyphers, he's in uh, The Fog, but he's more importantly in Halloween. He's the one that has to keep telling Donald Pleasance, look, you let him out. This is your fault. I see no evidence that he's here for tonight. It's just kids playing pranks. And that's basically the exact same speech he gives in this movie, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Carpenter doesn't doesn't like anything to go to waste. Though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the cop tells her, he's like, okay, he's sending you
0: threats. Um, we don't know who he is. We don't know where he's calling from. We can't do anything about it. The phone company won't put a tap. So these are his suggestions. He says, you could change your number, you could get an unlisted number, or you could just blow a whistle into the phone every time he calls. <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful police work.
1: Super helpful cops, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, that's the LAPD, I guess.
0: Okay, so here we go. We're now in Act 3. We're really in the final part of the movie. They kind of know where the stalker's coming from. They know he's threatening Lee. He's going to move in and go for the kill at a certain point here. And this is where Sophie kind of announces, you know, to everyone, you know, I'm taking that job in Fort Worth. This is too stressful. It's just going to be good for me. And, Lee's like, no, you got to stay here. And, and Sophie says, no, I, I made up my mind. I'm going to leave in two days or whatever tomorrow. I forget. This is very important in the plot in the movie. We're going to have to we have to lose Sophie here. OK, so here we go. Lee comes home late one night and she's been drinking. And Paul says, don't go home drunk. It's that's just a bad idea. And once again, Lee's like, no, fuck him. I'm going home. The stalker's not going to drive me out. And this is where the, the stalker starts calling her late at night. It's 1145. You're out late tonight. And then she's like, well, I hope you like the drapes, motherfucker, because they're strong. And they're staying where they are. And he's like, I want to see you, Lee. And he's like, come out. Look through the telescope. Come find me. And so she's like, wait. He's looking at me right now. And she's like, I'm looking. He's like, I'm looking at you. Come find me. So she goes outside, her and Sophie, I believe. And they look across to see someone across the street looking at her from a penthouse apartment and they see him it's uncle leo from earlier before <laughs> <laughs> hello lee yeah. so it's the exact same guy she met down in the basement she ran into she's like he's looking at me he's looking at me through the telescope that is the stalker and this is where stuff is going to happen real fast because we're going to call charles cyphers in again
1: yeah that's right and uh so if i recall correctly this is where he comes in and And uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy. Right. And so he says, sometimes we do things that are a little uh, irregular and we certainly won't get any medals for them. But as long as they get the job done, we feel they're all right. (laughs) I mean, it is the LAPD. They're not really known for by the book. Yeah, (laughs) I just love that line. I had to write that down.
0: Yeah, but anyway, this is a great scene. We watch Lee and Sophie watch across the street as Uncle Leo is arrested. We see the cops come in, grab him. He tries to run. And now we go to uh, the uh, police interrogation where they think they've caught the stalker. They think Uncle Leo, he's in here for postal fraud. Newman is going to interrogate him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would be a great twist. Yeah, that
0: would be great. But what do we learn from this scene? We learn that Uncle Leo is a peeper. He is known to take dirty pictures of women through their windows. He has access to the lights. He's a mechanic. He uh, has been in their laundry room. He's been in her building. He's just a general creeper. They're like, this is the guy. We have the guy. And Uncle Leo, you know, pleads ignorance. I didn't do this. But they really think they have the guy. And and they, what, they deport him to Iowa, if I recall?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they send him away immediately, <laughs> pretty much. I don't know how they did that, but yeah.
0: Yeah, we've got this guy who's a sexual predator. Iowa, you want him? And then Iowa's like, yeah, sure, why not?
1: (laughs) Well, what else do they have out there, really? I mean. (laughs) We
0: could use the population. (laughs) So Uncle Leo has been deported. Uh, (laughs) Jerry's going to be very upset. Nana's going to be very upset. (laughs) And that's the thing with the John Carpenter movie. The calls all stop. Now that we've arrested the red herring suspect, all goes back to normal and all is right in the world, and the calls stop, and everyone's happy. And for about ten minutes, Lee looks like she's going to get through this unscathed. She even she even opens her drapes again.
1: Mm-hmm. And then uh, he pulls the carpet out from under you. Then there's a little switcheroo here.
0: Yeah. Now, now shit gets real because now the letters start up again from Excursions Unlimited.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, are we to the scene yet where she goes into her restroom? Because this is creepy, too.
0: Okay, I'll get to that. Yeah, she uh gets one more letter that said, removal procedures beginning immediately. Lee must be removed from the premises. And she's like, oh, shit. And she starts calling the cops, calling Paul. But no one believes her because they think they've arrested the guy. They think he's out in Iowa. And now, like you said, this is the part of the movie where no one believes her and she's starting to freak out.
1: You And you almost, you know, I, I was watching this part again today and, the way it's filmed and, and the way it's written, you almost start to wonder, is she hallucinating this? Mm-hmm. And for so for, for a little bit here, you're like, maybe she just really is crazy.
0: Yeah, and they do play with you. We're meant to think maybe Paul is the killer or the stalker. Maybe Ali is actually crazy. It really does start to mess with your head. Again, very deep for a TV movie of this era. They were not normally this intricate.
1: And Hutton does such a great job of selling this. I mean – um, just the way she's she's strong through the whole movie, but she she does kind of start to break down a little bit and she starts to lose it um and she she does a great job of of this.
0: Is this the bathroom scene with the mirror that's what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is seriously creepy um so she she's kind of wigging out and she goes into her bathroom. And it, if I recall, correctly, isn't the shower running? Yeah, the shower's been running. Someone has been in her apartment and turned the shower on. And someone has written on her mirror in, uh, in the, the, what is it, the steam, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, no one believes you. And she's staring at it. She's just standing there staring at it. And then it sort of melts down. It's a really cool effect.
0: Yeah, I think this leads into the scene. There's a really big scene here. I don't want to spoil it, but uh, she calls Sophie to come over. And Sophie says, oh, sure, I'll come over. I'm leaving for Fort Worth tomorrow, but I can help you out tonight. And Lee's like, the stalker is still alive. He's still taunting me. And Sophie's like, no, he's not. We arrested him. He's gone. And Lee's like, this fucker is still messing with me. And she goes out on her balcony and she sees someone up in a penthouse apartment staring at her through a telescope. And she's like, that's him. This ends tonight. I'm going to go murder him. And so, like I said, those that's what my, like my daughter and my wife love. She's very proactive. She's not going to take this. And this is a really long, perfect John Carpenter scene where Sophie stays in Lee's apartment and watches through a telescope and talks on a walkie talkie as Lee walks across the street and tries to break into the guy's apartment and kill him basically.
1: Yeah. And I hate to bring up rear window yet again, but this is, a, this is a really like uh strong homage to that, but different because in this uh, movie you get to see inside the apartment that, that Lee goes into and she's looking for evidence and stuff. Um, And then you get to see from her point of view into her own apartment across the street, which is really cool. And this is when we see – well, I'll let you say what it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is fantastic because this whole scene is shot through a telescope lens. We just see the little crosshairs and the lens, and we see Sophie looking at Lee across the street. And we see Lee looking at Sophie back in, in her apartment. And Lee is in the killer's apartment. She sees his tape recorder. She sees his notebook. She sees a catalog with bugs. She sees you know, tape reels. This is it. This is the guy. And she's talking with Sophie across the street in her walkie talkie. She's like, Sophie, I found him. This is it. We have all the evidence we need. And just when she says that, this is when the shit is going to hit the fan because poor Sophie back in Lee's apartment is not aware she's in the apartment with a killer and she's about to meet her maker. And this is for a TV movie, this is
1: a horrifying scene. Oh, I know. This is so hard to watch. <laughs> and, and you see poor, poor Sophie getting attacked and strangled. Um, and and Lee is looking at her, and she's just freaking out. And then she's like, "I got to get out of this room and go across the street and see see if she's okay." And then, uh, well, back in the day, we would have cut to a commercial because it fades. Um, and then you uh, we fade back in, and she's back in her apartment. And I believe the cops are already there, right? Yeah, it's something. Sophie
0: gets jumped. Sophie gets strangled. Lee has to run across the street. And by the time she gets there, the cops are there, but there's no body. The stalker has killed Sophie, taken her body somewhere. And this will become an important plot point because – no one believes that Sophie is dead. They think Sophie went to Fort Worth for her new job. We tr- it turns out that someone went on the plane using her ticket. The cops do not believe her. And this is the last stretch of the movie where everyone thinks Lee is nuts. Yeah. Like, the, the guy is in Iowa. He's arrested. He's gone. Sophie was not murdered. You are crazy. And she even takes him back to the killer's apartment, tries to show him all the evidence, all the tapery reels and stuff. They've all been cleared out. And they even tell her, the guy who owns this apartment is out of town for a month. No one was in here, so Leah's really just straight, in, straight cracking up at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Charles Cypher's like, uh, "Nope, she got on that plane, she took off, you know." And so, <laughs> and the, and and even at this point, as a viewer, I'm going, "Okay, what really happened?" It, it's it's kind of cleverly cleverly done.
0: I just had to laugh when I was listening to Charles Cypher because he's almost reciting the exact same st- speeches he does in Halloween to D- Donald Pleasence. He's like, yeah. you're <laughs> jumping at shadows, Doc. I don't believe in the boogeyman.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess just what Charles Seifert says. Is... <laughs> yeah. So Lee goes back to her apartment. She gets a phone call. No one believes you. And Lee's like, fuck you. I'm just going to kill you. I hate you. I'm going to get you. This is where she goes in her elevator. He stops the elevator like she's just fucked. He controls every little thing about her life and she doesn't even know what's up or down anymore. And it's going to lead to a very terrifying last 20 minutes.
1: Yeah. And I feel like this bit with the elevator, too, is kind of foreshadowed earlier. Like that shot I was talking about where they're outdoors and she's looking for Paul and you see the elevator go up the side of that building. So then. At this point in the movie, the elevator becomes a, uh, a plot point again because, uh, well, we think the stalker is, is has stalked her into this elevator and is screwing with the lights. And then she, you know, she hits the emergency brake. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It was like a, it was like foreshadowing from that first act with this elevator.
0: OK, so let's get to the very end of the movie here where Lee goes to Paul, her boyfriend, and she says, nobody believes in me. Do you please say you believe me? This guy is still stalking me. And Paul says, yes, he, he sighs and admits he's like, I do. I love you. I believe you. And so they try to brainstorm. Who could this guy be? He's in our building. He's in the building across the street. He controls the elevators. He controls the lights. He controls the climate, the air conditioning. He has a master key to everybody's apartment. Who is this guy? And this is where they do the work that perhaps the police should have done earlier.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Where they're like, Hey, what if it's a maintenance worker? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and we should mention uh, that, so this is right after that uh, the stalker has tormented her with the audio of Sophie dying. Oh,
0: yeah, I forgot about that. Over,
1: yeah, over the walkie-talkie. This is totally creepy. Okay, so they go
0: to City Hall, and they ask for who has maintenance records to access all these buildings to get into all this stuff. And the guy says, uh, well, you know, we have these, uh, what are they called? Monitors. We have built, we have monitors. monitors. Yeah. yeah. We have employees called monitors that can basically get into any high rise in the building. And they're there for emergencies. They do maintenance. They do inspections. They have skeleton keys. They can get anywhere. And so they finally look through the records and they figure out there's only one monitor in Los Angeles who's been in all these buildings where these people have been dying. These girls have been committing suicide into Lee's building, into the building across the street. His name is Herbert Stiles. And he's, what, a 10-year employee, never had any problems, no, never been disciplined. He's a model employee. But Paul and Lee are like, that's the guy. All the dates match. He's always in the buildings when these girls are committing suicide. He's always in my building.
1: Such a perfect stalker name. too. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> Herbert, yeah. <laughs> they agree. They're going to go to the police with this information. They're going to go get arrest arrest Herbert Stiles. But again, like I said, Lee is not taking shit in this movie. She's going to go to this guy's house and kill him herself.
1: Yeah. Now she is like just full-blown stalker herself. But, and nothing's going to stop her.
0: And she has been told... She has been told, someone says, uh, well, this guy, Herbert Stiles, is out of town on vacation right now. She's like, good. She's going to break into his house, and she's going to start fucking with him, which I love. She's going to start messing with all his equipment. And i got to say, this scene is so Halloween. There's so many little Halloween tricks in this scene where she's breaking into his house. Oh, totally, yeah. Like the first person, it's all shot in first person. It's like the shot in Halloween when little Michael Myers is walking into the house to grab the knife to stab his sister at the start. That's what this scene is like. Later we see a pair of legs walking towards her. It's very much like Michael Myers walking through the brush. It's, it's a, exactly a blueprint for Halloween later.
1: And this is all taking place in the dark, too. Uh, it, it's just it's so effective. And then somebody comes to the door, scares the hell out of her. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really cool. And, and this is only, what, maybe two, three-minute scene?
0: Yeah, it's not very long. It's, but, it's again, it's, she's very proactive and very determined. And, again, he's not there, but she sees all the evidence. She sees Excursions Unlimited. She sees his typewriter. Uh, <laughs> and there's one shot where she's taking a cab to this guy's house, and as she's in the living room, Talking to Paul on the phone, look, this is the guy, we arrested him. You see a shadow walk right behind her in the window, which, again, such a John Carpenter shot.
1: Yeah, totally, yeah. And that that's the cab driver, right, who's waiting for her?
0: Yeah, it's the cab driver. It's a false ending. Pa, Herbert Stiles is not here, but... Herbert Stiles is going to be mad once he figures out that she has been in his apartment because now she's going to go back to her apartment and now we get the final battle that she is a He has entered her place. She has entered his place. They both knew who each other is. And now we're going to get one final battle, the final girl against the villain back in her place. And this is absolutely fantastic. This fin this final scene.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I had forgotten how cool this was when I was watching this last night I was like, man, this last five minutes is is just one of the best parts of the movie. It's so well done. Okay, let me
0: set it up for you. So she goes back to her apartment, and I think the door is ajar. So she knows he's in her apartment. Yeah. And she could call the cops. She could call Paul, but she's not going to because she's going to end him because this is my apartment. Get out of my fucking apartment. And so she walks in. And the next five minutes, I swear, there's not a speck of sound on the soundtrack. It's just her silently creeping through her apartment looking for him, all shot in first person from her perspective, just lots of little John Carpenter tricks. Like at one point, there's a little click, and the camera does a double take to look at the click. It's just a neat little touch. Oh, yeah. 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 The suspense is almost unbearable here, because he will not pop out. He's just hiding.
1: And uh, this is where she gets the note, or or she sees the note that's supposedly written from her, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, he has written a
1: suicide note on her
0: table. Yeah, it says, you know, uh, what did she write? Here it is, no touch of sadness for anyone to bear, no guilt. I simply can't go on, Lee. So this is the night she's supposed to die, like everybody else who dies at his hand. He's written her suicide note. She's going over that balcony at some point in the next ten minutes, but she's trying to surprise him and overpower him before he can do it.
1: It's the night Lee came home.
0: <laughs> yeah, Very good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's again, it's really smart. He has shut off all the lights in her apartment. He's turned off the fuses. He's disconnected her phone. But she opens her drapes. She knows all the ways to get more light in here. She knows the tricks to her apartment. It's kind of like uh, Wait Until Dark, the end of Wait Until Dark. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The blind lady's up against, uh, what, Al- Alan, Arkin. I forget what Arkin it is, but yeah.
1: Yeah. It's Alan Arkin. Yeah. yeah. So
0: it's really cool. It's a cat and mouse game just in the dark. And again, I cannot get over the fact there's no music in this whole chase. It's like the end of silence of the lambs. It's just so fantastic. I just wrote in my notes, this is so effective. It's crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and not to dwell too long in this, but this is another reason why I love The Exorcist so much is because a lot of The Exorcist is actually really quiet. There's no score, not much going on. It's, it's all uh, you know, a little bit of sound effects and stuff, but it really like makes it more realistic when there's not a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just focus on the visuals, and, and the suspense is just off the charts.
0: Yeah, and again, I can't say enough that John Carpenter doesn't cheat. He doesn't use loud music cues to make you jump. He doesn't love jump scares, just to have jump scares. He will just let, there, let you sit there in the uncomfortable silence for as long as you have to be. And I just love how he milks it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's why he's my favorite, too. That and, and the master shots he uses. He uses a lot of master shots in this, mm-hmm. in this film. Just, you know, full, full room shot. Uh, you see everything going on, even if it's in the dark. And it's it's so effective,
0: although I did catch another little John Carpenter touch. You'll get a kick out of there's a there's a scene in Halloween where they're at the hedge. Michael Myers hiding behind the hedge and Annie walks up and grabs the hedge and he's not there. Yeah. And if you look close, you can see John Carpenter's cigarette smoke come up in front of her face. Right. Real famous blooper. There's a moment in this scene, too, either this scene or the one before, where Lee is standing in a door frame, and if you look close, you can see John Carpenter's cigarette smoke come right up in front of her face.
1: <laughs> no way.
0: That's right. That's the kind of stuff I look for when I watch these movies.
1: Oh, my God. I have to go looking for that. As soon as we're done with this, I'm going to go look for that. <laughs>
0: yeah, I will find in my notes I wrote exactly where it happens. It's somewhere in this movie where she's by herself, and it's a close-up of her face right against a wall.
1: Oh, yeah. Please tell me where that is because that's fantastic. That's so Carpenter.
0: <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Lee is trying to get out the front door. She runs to the front door. It's jammed. The guy has broken the lock. She can't get out. And again, she should be scared. It's her against the killer. But this is where she starts taunting him instead, which I love. She's like, you're hiding, aren't you? You're afraid of me. You're afraid to get too close. Then she's like, come on. Come on, Dickless. Come on. Face me. <laughs> you know, I'm still scared. You still got a good chance to beat me. Come on. Come find me. But he won't come out because he's a coward. And she's like, it's like that. I don't even get to see who you are. She's like, that's it. Last challenge. Last chance to get me. And this is where all the ending is going to happen real fast here.
1: Yeah. And this ending is, is an exhilarating, what, 30 seconds or a minute. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's this is this is what I was talking about earlier where I don't know how they shot this. <laughs> this is just crazy. Yeah.
0: I, I have almost no flaws with this movie. It's like a perfect TV movie. My only complaint is that the ending is way too quick. It happens so quick and then the credits roll.
1: Oh, okay. I, I can kinda see that. Um yeah, I guess. But but I, I actually watching this again last night, um, I think I didn't think that as much as I did the first time I watched it. I was like, oh okay, that was that was satisfying. Um but the first time I watched this, yeah, yeah, I was like, whoa that kind of came out of nowhere. Well, remember it is a TV movie.
0: We got to get to some chunky soup commercial or something.
1: They <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I will say like like I said, this last minute or so when this when this, you know, climaxes this this little duel here is is just great.
0: Okay. Here we go. So, she knows he's hiding in her apartment and she challenges him, he won't jump out and get her. So she tries to catch him off guard. She runs for her balcony. She's got this big big old window and sliding glass door balcony where she can get outside. And she runs out there and tries to get outside, but he has locked it. So she throws her chair through the glass window. Again, we're like 35 floors up. And she tries to get out the window, and she starts screaming, Help! Help! Murder! Help! And at some point between the first murder and the third help, all of a sudden he's behind her. And I don't know where John Carpenter got that jump scare, but all of a sudden he's right there grabbing her. It's unbelievable how quick it happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He just comes out of nowhere. And and as I said, I don't know how they film this. Like if they actually film this in an apartment building, um, or if that was a rear projection of, of an apartment building across the street, because they, she really goes for this glass and just shatters it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's another shot coming up, which is even more (laughs) crazy. Um, I, I would love to know how they film this, but I just don't have that information. But it's really effective. Yeah, there's not much written about this movie, so I don't know. Yeah, it, it maybe there's some information on the Blu-ray, but I, I just don't have it.
0: Maybe Lauren Hutton has an Instagram account. I'll have to send a message to her.
1: <laughs> yeah, ask her uh, if she still thinks this is the best work she's ever done. <laughs> That'd be pretty damn cool if she said that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So anyway, there's a fight. He grabs her. He's trying to struggle with her. He's trying to basically strangle her, but she fights back. She fights him off. He can't choke her. So he tries to throw her out the window instead. And this is where we get them struggling out on a, what appears to be a real balcony on a real 35th floor of a building.
1: It's just an, it's an incredible shot. Like I, I, I really don't know how they did it. Um, I, I was, like, looking tra- looking at it close, like, was that a matte painting, or w- what the hell's going on? I don't know. It looks real. It looks real.
0: And I should point out, we still have not seen this dickhead's face the entire movie. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right.
0: He's fighting her from behind. He's strangling her. All he's dressed in is a nondescript blue uh, mechanics jumpsuit. Tell me if that sounds familiar to Halloween.
1: Hmm... <laughs> Yeah, it does sound sound a little familiar.
0: Yeah, so anyway, he tries to shove her out the window. He tries to throw her off the balcony, but she's feisty. She's clawing him. She's grabbing him. And then at one point, right before he's about to throw her off the balcony, she grabs a big chunk of broken glass that has been dislodged when she threw her chair out the window. She grabs it, and she just stabs him right in the back as hard as she can. And he screams. And she unleashes himself. She unloosens herself and gets away from him. And this is the only time, literally, there's eight seconds left in the movie, we see his face. And how would you describe his face? Uh, uh I don't know, doughy maybe? <laughs> yeah, he's just a fat, middle aged balding guy. Like <laughs> like the girl in the, the lady in the restaurant said. Just some guy.
1: Kind of like the like a Maytag repairman. <laughs> Fred Mertz. That's who he is. Fred Mertz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jesse White or one of those guys, yeah. She has stabbed him in
0: the back. He screams. He reaches back, and as he's reaching back, he leans forward. We see his face for like a minute, and then he falls forward, tumbles off the balcony, falls 35 floors to his death. And literally that's the whole movie. That's why I say it ends very abruptly for how much tension there's been in this movie. And then she just kind of looks down, and she sighs, and she says, You got too close. Yeah. (laughs) The, The classic Lauren Hutton quip. The end, yeah. <laughs> and then we freeze on her face, and the commercials come up, and then the you being stalked in your home, call Allstate.
1: <laughs> I will say one thing that I wish we had gotten maybe a little more closure on is Sophie. We don't we don't know what happened to her. If she's really dead or or what happened. So you think the the
0: stalker fake strangled her and let her go out of the goodness of his heart? <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe like a brief funeral scene would have been nice or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, they look down and Sophie's not there. And Dr. Loomis is like, I shot
1: her six times. <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll splice together these two movies. We've got to, got to have uh, Donald Pleasance coming at the end.
0: <laughs> yes. I watch Sophie stare at the wall, stare through the wall, looking to this night. This night, Sheriff.
1: There you go. Sophie has come to your
0: little town, Sheriff.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, we'll have to do a fan edit.
0: Yeah, but anyway, that's the movie. A very simple TV movie about a stalker, a lady getting stalked by some old guy across the street. But in the hands of John Carpenter, easily one of the best TV movies I've ever seen. Again, not a straight horror movie, not super bloody. There aren't a whole lot of killings. No jump scares. It's not like one that's going to... Keep you up at night. But like it really does get under your skin at times. It's really effective for what it is. And I'm so happy that Chris, you you turned me on to this movie a couple of years ago, which coincidentally was right after you were turned on to it. So there you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, I just slotted it into that that six film marathon of TV movies blindly. I just knew it was Carpenter. I'm like, OK, I, I, I'd like to watch this. We're going to check it out. And like I said, I was I was floored by how good it was. It, it is honestly one of my favorite carpenter movies and and I don't say that lightly because as I said he's he's pretty much my favorite director and I've seen just about all his movies. I think I'm I, there's like two or three I haven't seen but uh, I would put this right up there. This would be you know in my top I don't know six, six or seven carpenter films really um, way underrated. And so good. And and one of those movies where I watched it last night in preparation for this, and I immediately wanted to watch it again. I I think, you know, you, you pointed out some things in this that I didn't even notice. And every time you watch this, there's, there's new little things going on in the background and, and homages um, that, that you can catch. It's just, it's a, it's a real gem. And, and historically too, where it falls in his filmography and, how it it was filmed before Halloween? It came out a month later, and it, it's it's just really cool to see to see him at the beginning of his career, but he's already firing on all cylinders too.
0: Yeah, and this is available on Blu-ray and DVD now, right?
1: Yeah, uh, Scream Factory has a Blu-ray of it, and I think it has some special features. I s- still need to pick that up. Um, yeah, I, I would pick it up uh, if anybody's interested. Pick it up while you can, because. Sometimes their stuff just goes out of print and, uh, without much warning sometimes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great.
0: Yeah. So again, that's the lesson here. John Carpenter was awesome. Early John Carpenter, especially awesome. Find this movie. You will not regret it. Um, I show my wife and I show these old movies to my daughter who's 22 and she's about, you know, 50, 50 on old movies. She doesn't really like the style sometimes. A lot of them are, eh? She couldn't really be, she couldn't really be less impressed by a lot of older classic movies, but we showed her this one, and she was like, "That one was pretty good. I like that one." So that's high praise from a 22 year old right there.
1: And a lot of that goes to, to Carpenter's writing, Lauren Hutton's performance. She's so good in this, and and her character is so great. Uh, Adrian Barbeau too, I think, does a great job, and and it's a, like you said, it's a progressive character. For nineteen seventy eight. Um this I think this just really stands up. I, I wish more people would would check it out. Um and, and as you said too, a lot of those old horror TV movies, there there's some real gems there. Um I, I love I love so many of those. It's that's like one of my one of my favorite uh sub is uh <laughs> horror TV movies of the seventies and eighties. Uh, I got a real soft spot for that stuff
0: yeah I just picture these families you know gathering around the t v in nineteen seventy eight and being exposed to this movie, and then like the parents have to calm down the kids afterwards look it's it's not real, it's just a movie, nobody's stalking you like <laughs> i just I just love that the image of these families watching these t v movies back in the seventies yeah.
1: yeah, I'm sure some of these had to just warp people <laughs> or or the eighties ones too like like uh don't go to sleep, oh man, we've talked about that one before. I have not done that on staff picks
0: yet and it's only because I cannot find a good copy. Every copy I see is like fourth generation VHS dubbed on YouTube. It's almost unwatchable, but that that is the single greatest horror TV movie ever and I if I can ever find a good copy, I will cover it.
1: Oh man, yeah, it is so great. Um as I said, I'm I'm still partial to Duel, but uh but that's right up there. That that's that's I only saw it a couple of years ago. I didn't see it. I remember when it aired in the 80s, but I didn't see it until a couple of years ago. And I was I was shocked at how <laughs> how how hardcore it went in places like, wow, they really went for it.
0: I saw it when I was eight. It was on TV. Oh god! I was at my grandparent's house and I only watched the first half hour. I remembered that movie for the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah. I remembered every little detail, and I didn't even see the really scary parts at the end. I just remembered the little kid falling off the roof and his head exploding into a watermelon.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah then someone got electrocuted in the bath. I'm like, this isn't the Disney stuff I'm normally watching at age eight. I'm not sure my parents want me to see this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's some, some great imagery in that movie, some stuff that will will you'll never forget.
0: Anyway, we're about to sign off. I'm trying to keep these horror episodes short. We got about an hour forty for this one, which is a good amount of time. Uh, I think a little longer than the movie, even. Anything else you wanted to say about John Carpenter or anything before you sign off?
1: Oh boy, I, I could talk for hours about John Carpenter. I just, I just, I love the guy, and uh, I actually got to see him in concert a couple years ago too, on Halloween, and that was just, that was just unbelievable. He played all his famous uh scores and uh, played some new stuff and yeah i just i think he's great he's a sort of a renegade filmmaker and kind of rough around the edges and 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 a guy who was never really well respected uh you know when all this stuff was coming out other than halloween um he's always been kind of a dark horse in the industry and kind of an outsider and um, that just makes me like him more and and uh a movie like this, which is so good, which a lot of people haven 't even heard of, you really got to check out, I think
0: yeah, I absolutely have to do the fog at some point on staff picks i i 'm a big fan of the fog
1: okay. oh yeah that 's another underrated one
0: although i 'm glad you mentioned that about the soundtrack that 's the one thing this movie's missing that doesn't that it, how it doesn 't really stack up to the later John carpenter movies he doesn 't do the music in it. A lot of the music is like very generic TV movie stuff, and at least the, the scenes that actually have music. It's not his stuff. Can you imagine this movie with Halloween music? It would be unbelievable.
1: Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the guy that did this score was uh, Harry Suckman, who who did a lot of uh, TV work. And and there's really not a whole lot of score in this. Um, I think the times it does come in, it's, it's pretty effective. And as I said, he... He's kind of channeling Bernard Herrmann, you know, Hitchcock's main composer. Um, but but yeah, I, with, a, with a Carpenter score, they they probably just didn't allow him to do it. You know, he was young, early in his career. Um, like like I said, they only gave him 11 days or 18 days to shoot this. So I think he, I think he said something like, well, he just he did what he could. You know, he, he exerted as much control as he could, but he didn't. He didn't have that much.
0: It was a TV movie. It's like, here's 50 bucks. Go make a TV movie. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm going to send you guys off to uh, go watch Someone's Watching Me, which, again, terrible title. I wish they would have given it. I think it had a different title. Wasn't it called High Rise, you said?
1: High Rise. Yeah, yeah which is
0: yeah. a much better title.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool.
0: Yeah, Someone's Watching Me with an exclamation point seems real hacky, but whatever. <laughs> like a sitcom
1: or something. <laughs> That that exclamation mark, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was waiting for Jack Tripper to burst in the door and save her at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, I want to thank you for stopping by. I think this is your third or fourth time on Staff Picks. You also hosted my 100th episode. So, uh, yeah, Chris is one of my good friends, and I really want to
1: have you on again. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It's always a blast, and I'm always happy to come on whenever you want me.
0: All right, once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love. And because this is Horror Month, they will all be horror films. Anyway, I will talk to you guys later. Watch out for Uncle Leo. See ya.